Now you would be forgiven if you thought, well, he's not really done with the book of Job. Uh, you'd be forgiven if you thought we, we maybe had one or two more sermons in that book. We were in a, a, a fair amount of time, a little over a year, about 13 months or so, 13 and a half months or so. Um, but believe it or not, we are uh, finished. We're beginning our uh, study through the book of Philippians. And uh, we're starting off in grand fashion by looking at one verse, the first verse of the book. Uh, but we're also, uh, as it were, really looking at an entire chapter as well. Um, it's uh, one of these uh, instances where we actually have a fair amount of background uh, to the book of Philippians, at least the origins of this church. And so, uh, if you will, please turn in your Bibles. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 16. Uh, this, uh, this is a, it's a, it's a long chapter, but it provides context for the establishment of uh, the Philippian work, the Philippian mission work, uh, as we might put it in, in uh, more modern parlance. Um, and so we'll start at the beginning of, of chapter 16 and read through the end. And then our scripture, our sermon passage, rather, is Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. And so uh, this is, of course, it's introductory. You probably all know that and expected that. So there's some introduction, there's some history. We'll also get into uh, some of the theology that is contained in just a few short words, really, one verse uh, in the book of Philippians. <clears throat> So again, Acts chapter 16, the entire chapter is our scripture reading. Philippians chapter 1 verse 1 is our sermon passage today. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It is life. It is your food. Feast on it as you hear it read this morning. <clears throat> Paul came also to Derb and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy, Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily." And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had been when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. <clears throat> so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, went outside the gate to the, to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. 
She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that her, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat their, them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman uh, citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And now turning, if you will, to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Timothy and, I'm sorry, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. This ends the reading of God's most holy, infallible, and inspired word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, as your word has now been read, we pray for your blessing upon it as it is now preached. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to understand both what Paul did in the city of Philippi, but also the words that he wrote to the believers, the brothers and sisters, the saints there. We pray that the sermon today would be edifying, and we pray that our time in this book uh, throughout, that it would be edifying, that it would be encouraging, that it would be challenging. We pray, dear Lord, that you would speak to us as your word is read and as it is preached. And so we pray for your blessings upon those who hear and for your blessings upon the one who speaks. 
And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we've already mentioned, we know a good bit about the background of this church uh, in the city of Philippi. We know the origin story of the church itself. The church at Philippi, consisting of all the saints that Paul greets in verse 1, was the first church on European soil. Now, did you, did you know that? You might not have realized that. And its founding is one of the most memorable accounts in a book, the Acts of the Apostles, which is filled with memorable accounts. How many of you didn't know the story of the Philippian jailer before you heard it read just now? I'm sure all of you have, have heard of it. You're familiar with it. It's, it's astonishing. It's remarkable. Now, we just read Acts 16, which contains this account, but it's worthwhile going over some of the earliest history of this particular church. The church was founded during Paul's second missionary journey in the Mediterranean uh, around A.D. 49 to 50. And this letter was probably written sometime between 10 to 12 years later, sometime between A.D. 60 and 62, and most likely while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. There are some competing theories about possibilities that Paul wrote it when he was imprisoned in Caesarea, which is uh, an account contained in the book of Acts. Uh, other theories about the possibility uh, that he was imprisoned in Ephesus, which is not accounted, uh, not, uh, not recorded in any book, but there's, uh, there are some scholars who think that it, that was a possibility. Uh, but most likely... And this has been the traditional view, and this is the view of, I think, most conservative scholars on the issue, is that it was when Paul was imprisoned in Rome at the end of his life. Now, Paul, in this missionary journey, he had been in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. So imagine the Mediterranean as best as you can. If, if you've got maps in your Bibles, there's nothing wrong with turning to those maps now. It'll give you a, an overall sense of the lay of the land and, and of the sea there. But uh, Asia Minor is connected to uh, Israel, uh, to Jerusalem. Paul, of course, was in Tarsus, which is... Uh, I'll do my map according to how I see it. So let me change hands and, and do it in reverse. Uh, Paul is, uh, grew up in Tarsus, which was to the north, uh, the northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, Tarsus is a part of Asia Minor. Paul had done his first missionary trip in uh, Jerusalem and parts of Asia Minor. And so his second uh, missionary trip, he starts to head uh, west. And he's uh, there in Asia Minor um, at certain parts of it. But the Lord, we read in Acts chapter 16, the Lord prevents him from, from proclaiming the gospel in uh, Galatia and other parts of, of that region. And, and then he uh, receives this call from this Macedonian man, a vision that he has there in Acts chapter 16. And so he travels with his compatriots. At that point, it's Silas and Luke. Uh, but they pick up Timothy uh, and they travel west to Troas, which is a port city on uh, the western shore of Turkey. And from there, they sail from uh, Troas to Samothrace. That's an, that's an island out in the Aegean Sea, uh, just very close to the Bosphorus Straits, which lead uh, through Constantinople into the Black Sea. Uh, and so they, they, they overnight in Samothrace, and then they continue on the next day uh, to European soil, to Macedonia, uh, to a town, a port city called Neapolis. Now, apparently Neapolis wasn't much of a city in those days. And so they travel on just a few miles west to the city of Philippi. Now, I'm not encouraging you to do this right now at the moment, but if you want to, this is an interesting uh, exercise. You can go to Google Maps or whatever, and you can punch in Philippi, Greece, and you'll find a city there, which is what I did. Uh, and then you'll start looking for signs or evidence that this was where Paul was, where he, where he uh, preached the gospel for the first time in Europe. Uh, and you won't see it there because there's another ancient 
uh, city, uh, just ruins, uh, a little further to the south and west of the city of Philippi, which is also known, I think in, in, in the Greek, it's Philippoi. Uh, and it's just, it's a lot of ruins. This is where Paul actually was. There's a, a, a some sort of a chapel that's been set up. That's a, a place where supposedly Lydia and her household were baptized on uh, the river uh, that runs down by this town. And so you can look all that up and it's, and it's, and it's worthwhile to do so. You get a sense of the setting for, uh, for the book. Um, so, uh, Paul's first sermon preached in Europe was in the city of Philippi, just a few miles inland from Neapolis. Now, uh, we've already talked about the fact that Paul had this vision. They set sail. They went, uh, they, they went uh, west, and they traveled to uh, Philippi, which, as Acts chapter 16, verse 12 says, was a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And Luke goes on to say in that verse that they remained in that city for some days. I mean, you know, they remained there for a while. And a part of that was while Paul and Silas were in prison. Just it seems like one night in the prison. But they were there for some days. Uh, one thing to note about this is the, the strategic uh, plan that, that Paul was carrying out. They, Neapolis, uh, some of you have been to port cities. And uh, having lived uh, near one um, for, for a while when I was in the military, they're, they're not necessarily the nicest places. Uh, they have bad reputations. They're uh, seedy and oftentimes just kind of not places you want to be with a family. And I don't know if that's why Paul chose not to preach for the first time uh, in uh, Europe, uh, but whatever the reason, he decided to go to Philippi, which was a leading city in the district of Macedonia, and it was a Roman colony. Um, on the first Sabbath that they were there, we don't know how long they were there necessarily before the Sabbath day, but the first Sabbath, uh, which would, for them would have been uh, Saturday, um, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, they went outside the gate of the city to the riverside and they met Lydia, a woman from Thyatira. Where is Thyatira? Thyatira is across the Aegean Sea, back in Asia Minor, and so Lydia was from Asia Minor, so they were prohibited from preaching the gospel in, in Asia. They go to, to Europe and who do they meet? An Asian, uh, Lydia, who was a, uh, was a Jew. She was a God-fearing Jew. Um, uh, the, Thyatira is to the east of, of Troas. It's not too far from Troas in Asia Minor. And Lydia was a seller of purple goods. Um, and uh, the Lord writes in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, uh, Luke writes that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And afterwards, she was baptized along with her household. And she invited Paul and the others to stay with her while they were in Philippi. Now, here's where we don't, we don't know the exact time frame, the chronology. But during their time there, they began to be harassed by a girl who had a spirit of divination. And who would go around behind Paul crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, you might think she was doing them a favor. And what she was saying was absolutely true. Uh, this is reminiscent of some of the instances in uh, the gospel accounts where demon-possessed people are following Jesus and crying out, and he silences them. Um, but this became something uh, that was an annoyance to Paul. Imagine trying to, to speak to people or to preach. and you know, Imagine if, if, if behind me we had some person yelling out during the sermon, during the worship service, and what a distraction that would be. And so verse 18 of Acts 16 says that Paul, he became greatly annoyed and he commanded the spirit to come out of her. And it said it did so in that same hour, which is a euphemism for it immediately. It did, it did so very quickly. It promptly came out of the girl. And as it turned out, this girl was quite the moneymaker for some men, the girl's owners. Apparently she was a slave. 
And they were not happy at all with Paul and Silas. And they went to the magistrates. They had Paul and Silas brought before the magistrates of the city of Philippi. And they were attacked uh, by the crowd that had gathered there. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten publicly with rods. And they were thrown into prison. And what follows is probably the best known incident of Paul's time in the city of Philippi. While they were in the Philippian jail, they were singing hymns and praying, which is difficult for us to imagine being done. But while they were doing so, and we read that the the other prisoners were hearing them singing, there was a great earthquake during which the foundation of the prison was shaken and the doors were opened and everyone's shackles. And you you read there uh, that, that Paul and Silas, they had shackles on their feet. Their shackles broke open, which makes it very clear that this is not just some sort of natural occurrence. It's not a natural phenomenon. Earthquakes don't tend to break apart shackles. This was a supernatural uh, miracle that took place. And the shackles were unfastened. And the jailer, when he awoke and when he rushed to the prison, uh, he was assuming that all the prisoners were gone. When he saw the doors open, he just knew that they were gone. And so he pulls out his sword not to try to kill prisoners. He pulls out his sword to kill himself. But before he could, Paul cried out to him not to harm himself. Paul told the jailer that all the prisoners were still there. Amazingly, how in the world were they all still there? You can imagine Paul and Silas remaining there, but we don't know how many uh, prisoners were in the prison, but they were still there. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in. He falls before Paul and Silas, and he says to them, he asks them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is very clear. This jailer knows that God has done something, that this is supernatural. This is not just some kind of natural occurrence that he can sort of write off and ignore. What must I do to be saved? Now, he could have thought to himself, these men just saved me. I don't need to do anything else. They've done it for me. But he asks them, what do I need to do to be saved? And the answer that they give to him is not an answer regarding works. He wants to know what he's got to do. They tell him, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe. We, we want to think like the Philippian jailer thinks. We want to know what we've got to do. Tell me what I've got to do. I need to do something. And Paul tells us, the Lord tells us to believe, which seems so passive to us. One scholar describes the stories of Lydia, the story of the young girl with the spirit of divination, the story of the Philippian jailer. He describes them as three examples of the power of Christianity in Philippi. And he he goes on to say, whether the girl became a Christian, we are not definitely told. But the others, no doubt, formed the nucleus of the Philippian church. They formed the core. Lydia, the Philippian jailer, perhaps this young girl, we don't know. She was was young and probably who knows what happened to her after she was set free from this demonic possession. Well, by the time Paul writes this letter, some 12 years later, give or take, after this first encounter with the Philippians, more believers have been added to the number of the church there. Paul does visit Philippi on subsequent missionary trips. On his third missionary trip, he he goes back and he visits Philippi again. He, He establishes a very close relationship with these believers, these saints in Philippi. But by the time he writes, 12 or so years later, Uh, More believers have been added to the number there. 
Paul mentions several of these believers by name in the epistle. Epaphroditus, who is in some sense the occasion for which Paul writes. He's sending the letter back. He's apologizing for having Epaphroditus with him for so long. Epaphroditus, he was sent out kind of on loan from the church to be with Paul and to accompany him. Epaphroditus, Euodia, Syntyche, and Clement. These are people that Paul mentions by name. But also mentioned, but not specifically named, in addition to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, are the overseers and the deacons of the church. Now, the word that's translated overseer in, uh, in this uh, first verse of Philippians 1 is the Greek word from which Episcopalian is derived. So you may not be Episcopal, but uh, Episcopal or Episcopalian means rule by overseers. Um, and so uh, Episcopalian is derived from this word. But Presbyterian and Reformed interpreters, who, of course, are always right, right? Uh, we believe that this word is a synonym for presbyteroi, the Greek word for elders, that's how we would understand this. So, so overseer uh, uh, and, and elder, these two are, are interchangeable words that Paul uses uh, as the occasion uh, arises. Uh, one stresses rule. Overseer is rule. When we think of our ruling elders in this church, that they, they're called both to, to, to rule, to have oversight uh, of the conduct of the church, but they also are called to shepherd. And that's the, the, the shepherding aspect is, is what's, what falls under the, 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 the word elder. Um, so uh, we would see those words as interchangeable. That's not the case for everyone in Christ church around the world. We understand that, um, but we're right. <laughs> um, Acts 14, chapter 23 says that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church they planted on the first missionary trip in Asia Minor. And we can, we can take from that that Paul continued this practice after he and Barnabas parted ways. That Paul continued to do this. And why is this? Well, Paul understood what is the truth of the New Testament, that a church could not be a church without elders. And so the church at Philippi had been organized as a particular congregation with elders for about the same amount of time that Mid-Cities has. Twelve years, give or take. Think about that. The time that at the time when Paul writes this letter, the church at Philippi is about as old as we are, and perhaps about as big. We have no idea of knowing. They could have been much larger. They could have been quite a bit smaller. We don't know. Um, but given that this is the first church that Paul had a, plant, a hand in planting on European soil, it is understandable that he's got a warm spot in his heart for this group of people, this body of believers. And the overarching tone of this letter is one of affection. It's one of the most affectionate and warm letters that you read written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Some of his letters are very stern. And, and indeed, in this letter, he will, he will rebuke the, the Philippian church over a couple of matters. But overall, it's one of love and affection. These people are near and dear to him. The church immediately, we might also add, began to support Paul financially right after this, this first encounter with them, right after this first stay with them, despite all of the troubles that they encountered. Uh, how many people would just want to be rid of people who show up and they cast out a demon and they get thrown in jail? But they support Paul financially. Paul says in, at the end of this book, at the end of Philippians in chapter 4, verse 16, he says that, after he departed from Philippi, he went on to Thessalonica, which is another city in Macedonia. And during his three weeks in that city, the Philippian Christians sent him material gifts several times, more than once, at least twice, perhaps more than that. They sent him financial gifts. 
They were already partnering with him. Within a couple of weeks of having first met him, they're already partnering with him in the ministry of the gospel. They partnered with him in the proclamation of the gospel, and he's extremely grateful to them, especially now, some 12 years later, for their many years of support. And because Timothy was with Paul and Silas when they first visited Philippi, and he was with Paul at the writing of this letter, Paul includes Timothy in the greeting to the Philippians. We read there at the very beginning of verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, oftentimes Paul will include his office in the greetings of his letters, such as his letter to the Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Or Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul does this when he is asserting his authority, and it's perfectly appropriate for him to do that. There are certain cases in which he has to be particularly stern, and he's got to remind them of his position of authority over them. But that's not the case with this letter. Here he simply uses the title servants, or better yet, preferably slaves. Paul doesn't have, have the need to remind the Philippians of his authority as he does with the Galatians and the Ephesians and others. It would have been wrong for him to do so, but he doesn't, he doesn't have to. With it. They know that he's an apostle. They, they regard him as one who has been sent, which is what the word apostle means. They understand it. A major theme of this letter is humility, as we're going to see in chapter 2. And so Paul is already setting the stage. He's planting the seeds for what will come later by referring to himself as a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. And so Paul's use of the word slaves for himself and Timothy would have had a profound impression on the saints at Philippi. Calling themselves slaves? According to one commentator, for the readers and hearers of this letter, slavery was an integral part of every aspect of life. Up to 85 to 90% of the people of Rome and Italy, from where Paul writes, were slaves or of slave origin. At least a third of most urban areas were slaves. These people understood slavery. They knew what it was like. And we, we should add, it wasn't the same. Slavery in the first century Roman Empire wasn't the same as the, the chattel slavery that took place in, in our country earlier in our history. It wasn't the same. They had freedoms uh, as slaves in those days that the slaves in earlier in our country did not have. But the fact remains that they were another person's property, these slaves. And so what Paul is saying, when he uses the title to refer to himself and Timothy as, as slaves, he is saying that Jesus Christ owns me. He is my master. I am his servant. I am his slave. They are slaves of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ has set them free from the slavery, the tyranny of sin. They are no longer under the dominion of Satan. And their slavery to Christ, their service to him, is one of joyful duty. They don't regard it as, as drudgery in the same way that, that those who were slaves in the Roman Empire would. And Paul addresses this epistle. After he's greeted them, he, he addresses this epistle to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, saint, this word is the descriptor of every Christian, everyone who has found new life and true freedom in Christ. 
That's the way every Christian is described. Sinclair Ferguson writes in his brief commentary on the book of Philippians, he writes, It does not refer to only certain outstanding Christians whom the church recognizes in a special way by canonizing them. No, all Christians have had their old life cut off, the root meaning of Paul's word, and are now distanced or set apart from their former lifestyle. They've been cut off from the old way. They've been set apart to a new life, a new way. And so the word translated saints, it literally means the holy ones. And everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is called a saint. And so if Paul were alive today, he might write a letter to all the saints at Mid-Cities Presbyterian Church, referring to, to everyone who is a member here, who's a part of this body. You are holy. You are set apart. Because by believing in him, you have been washed clean of your sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for you on the cross. You have been set apart. You've been called out from the world. You're no longer like them. You're no longer of them. Holy is what you are called. And holy is also what you are called to be. In Paul's letters to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he greets them by saying to the saints who are in Ephesus. And then he says this in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have been set apart from the rest of the world, but we are also commanded not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, as Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2. And so the saints at Philippi are those who have been called out, who have been set apart from the world, who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the saints at Philippi are also those saints who are at Philippi. They have been called out of the world, but they are still in the world. And this phrase, the saints at Philippi, it indicates a dual citizenship of the Christian One commentator writes, the Christian lives in two different orders of reality at the same time. Here we are called to live as alien residents. Now certainly life would be much easier if when God called you out, when he set you apart, when he declares you to be or designates you to be holy, if he would just go ahead and take you out of the world, right? It would be so much easier. All of the problems that arise in the church are the are because of the fact that we are still in the world and we are still sinners. Even though we're called saints, we still have that that resident, that remnant of sin, which is is in us. Paul refers to that in other places as the old man of the flesh. The the Philippian Christians' temporary citizenship was in the Roman colony, colony of Macedonia, but their eternal citizenship is with Christ in heaven. Their temporary citizenship is over. There are no more citizens of the Roman Empire. They have entered into the eternal kingdom. But even while they were still on earth, at the, writing, the time of this writing the writing of this letter, they have an eternal citizenship in heaven. They've already already begun their citizenship in heaven. Paul, in this simple greeting, is reminding 
the, the Philippian Christians of their dual citizenship, which serves also to remind them of the way that they are con to conduct themselves in this fallen world. Brothers and sisters, your primary citizenship is not in the DFW area of Texas of the United States of America on the earth. That is not your primary citizenship. And therefore, the primary way that you behave is not behavior that is consistent with the world in as much as the world is inconsistent with the behavior that Christ pres prescribes in his word. Your primary citizenship is in heaven. You don't behave like the world. And if you still do, it's time to put it to death, right? We, we're called to do that. We're called to be transformed, not to be conformed. Now, how many times in the past several years have you looked around yourself, you've looked around at what's going on in this country, and you've said to yourself, what has happened to my country? Or perhaps you've, you've said, I want my country back. I know, as we said earlier in the announcements, I know that not everyone would agree completely with the theology of Billy Graham. But most of us would agree that he proclaimed the gospel faithfully for 60 to 70 years. And there are probably some, and I think I recall some of you, when you talked about how you came to faith, that you did so at a Billy Graham crusade. Most of us would at least, you know, we, we may have quibbles with this theology, but we would, we would have a respect for the man. We would appreciate what he's done. We might have a fondness for his many years of ministry. We might, we might respect the fact that not once was he guilty of some sort of scandalous sin in the way that so many other so-called evangelists are. And so it's astonishing to read some of the things that were said about him immediately after his death this past week. One of the worst, which cannot be repeated in full here, was by some reporter named Lauren Duca. She's I don't know who she is. She's a journalist who tweeted, referring to Graham, she said, have fun in hell, expletive. That's what she said. One of the articles that I read had a number, first article I read about his death had a number of comments, and, and the vast majority of those comments were, were very negative about him, spewing hatred regarding him. And it seems that, at least with Lauren Duca, her main booth with, beef with Billy Graham was that he held to the traditional biblical understanding of homosexuality, which is that it's a sin. And Graham, you know, 99 years old, had the audacity to, to, to believe what the Bible said about it. But this hostility toward a man who for decades was the face of American evangelical, evangelicalism, it serves to show that to, quote, the great theologian Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> the truth is, we've never been in Kansas, but we've lived under the delusion for a while that we were, but we know now we're not. The anger spewing forth toward Billy Graham in particular, and Christians in general, is a hateful but a helpful reminder that as great as America is or once was, it is not our true home, even if it is made great again. It's not our true home. It's not our true place of residence. It is temporary. We are pilgrims. We are passing through. And the more, the more we get attached, the more we get locked down, 
the more difficult it is to live in a way that is consistent with our calling as believers. This is not the place that we will live forever. It is not the place of our lasting citizenship. We are temporary residents. Perhaps a better way to visualize it is that we, Christians, saints, we are a flock of sheep who are being shepherded through the valley of the shadow of death to our eternal home. That's a better way to look at it. We are in the valley of the shadow of death, brothers and sisters. But we're being shepherded home. And this gets us to that final phrase of verse 1 with the overseers and the deacons. Now, we maintain we would never do anything to take away from the fact that Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. He is the shepherd of his sheep. He is the one who speaks and the sheep know his voice. He calls them by name and they follow him. So we don't take away from that whatsoever in what is about to be said. From the very beginning of Paul's ministry, he understood that he couldn't simply go around and proclaim the gospel, sow the seed indiscriminately to people, some of whom would become converts, and then leave them behind as he moved on to the next place. Paul would always appoint elders, under shepherds, for the sheep. He knew that he could not leave them without overseers who would care for their souls. It is not part of God's design for his church, for his people, to have free-ranging Christians who have no connection to Christ's body, the church, and particularly a local body of the church. The church under the oversight of elders is the primary place that Jesus makes people into his disciples. Disciple-making is not a one-time punctiliar event that takes place and sticks in your history somewhere back there. It is an ongoing process. You are being made into a disciple. You weren't, you weren't made into a disciple at some point when you came to believe in Jesus Christ at a Billy Graham uh, crusade. God is still making you into disciples. And we also need to add that while having deacons was not essential to the establishment of a church, the church at Philippi was mature enough that they had a plurality of deacons to take care of the temporal concerns, the physical and the material needs of the congregation. You can't have a church without elders. You can't. There's no such thing. But you can have a church without deacons but we need to be careful to our, to our deacon who's here. Uh, we all know that having deacons is a true blessing to the church. Deacons are like the icing on the cake of the church. And so we don't want to go without deacons. Paul's letter to the Philippians, even just the first verse, the first 20 words of this letter, his letter is an indication, a clear indication of the great love that not only he, but more importantly, Jesus Christ has for his people, for his church. Just as with the Philippian Christians, God has called you out of sin and darkness and into his glorious kingdom. And he hasn't left you out in this world alone. You're not a wanderer like Cain. You are a member of the body of Christ. He has grafted you in. He has placed you in a local body of his visible church. And he uses the church to build you up and to form you into one of his disciples. As we've seen, and hopefully as your eyes are opened and you, and you see even more the great hostility of the world to Christ's church, 
you will see that God calls you to be holy in that hostile world. But here's the reminder of this. You're to be holy, and God commands you to be holy, but you're commanded to be holy after something has already taken place, after the declaration that you are holy. In other words, you're commanded to be holy after you've been set apart as one of his people so that you're now able to be holy. You've been given a new heart. You've been given a new life. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. He's working even now within you to transform you, to conform you to Christ Jesus, not to the world. In some ways, the hostility, the open hatred of the world for the church, it may be a blessing to us. What the world intends for evil, God has planned for good. In some ways, it may disabuse us of the notion that this is our permanent home. Remind us of who our true king is, our true leader, our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with all of that in mind, thinking about the fact that God has declared you to be holy, he's given you his spirit, he's given you his word, he's given you his ordinance, he's given you the means of grace, he's given you everything that you need to walk in a world that hates you because it hates your master, Jesus Christ. To walk in a world obediently and faithfully. You, brothers and sisters, are Christ Jesus' saints. You are his holy ones. And that is because he has called you according to his purposes. That is because the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, came in the flesh and died on a cross, and by his blood you have been washed clean. And that, that is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you. We thank you that you have called the Philippian Christians and you have called us saints. Lord, while we acknowledge that so often we fail to behave as those who have been declared to be saints, we acknowledge that we sin, we acknowledge that so often the comportment of our lives in so many ways, mirrors that of the world. We pray knowing that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. We know, dear Lord, that you are the author and the finisher. You are the, co- the completer, the perfecter of our faith. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to be what you have called us to be. That by your spirit, by the means of grace, you would help us to be holy, even as we have already been declared to be holy. We pray that you would remind us, dear Lord, that we have been called out from the world, that we are not a part of it any longer, even though we happen to continue to reside here temporarily. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to live like your pilgrim people. We thank you, O Lord, for calling us out, for equipping us. We thank you for giving us overseers, elders. We thank you for giving us deacons. 
But we thank you most of all for the great shepherd of your sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our head, who is our king. We pray this in his name. Amen.